Welcome to the Work Design Podcast. Listen to the world's greatest leaders share their stories and secrets on how they designed and built the best places to work. We'll shine a light on the challenges and breakthroughs of designing org charts, optimizing teams, and building jobs that people love. This is for modern leaders who are building the best teams at scale. Let's make work work better. Welcome to today's podcast. We have Clayton Molyneux joining us. Um, Clayton most recently was the Director of Customer Success at Auth0, a unicorn um, out of the US, Seattle. Um, joining me today, as per normal, we've got uh, Damien Bramanis, uh, co-founder at Functionally. Hey, G'day. Damien. G'day, Tim. And, and Tim Brewer, uh, co-founder at Functionally and CEO. Great to be here. Super excited about the call today. Now, we're going to throw to you, Clayton. Tell us a little bit about... Um, your work history, sure. Um, both at your most recent work, but um, how did how did life start off managing people? Sure. Well, nice to be here. Thanks, uh, Tim and Damien. So, uh, most recently, yeah, at Auth Zero, company based over in Seattle. Uh, as you said, uh, last year uh, became a unicorn, a US billion dollar valuation, which is pretty exciting. Actually, my last role there uh, over the last year was uh, as the head of culture in the company, which relates quite a lot to probably some of the things we'll talk about today too, but predominantly the time I spent there uh, four years previously to that was uh, building and, and running the customer success uh, function at the company. Uh, prior to that, I was at Microsoft for five or six years, uh, mainly spending time uh, in different channel management roles, a lot of small to mid-market uh, type roles, um, right in the transitional period there with Microsoft when they were moving to the cloud, mm -hmm. all in as, uh, as Barma called it back then. So a lot of helping uh, the MSPs and that mid-market uh, partner space moving their business model from you know traditional big uh, chunky sales of licenses to moving to this annuity and subscription based model and prior to that I actually managed an MSP uh, uh, was general manager at uh, uh, an Australian MSP uh, came over here to Perth was based in Melbourne originally came to Perth and started up a branch office of uh, of that company and uh, had a great time there we, we were pretty successful in growing the company won a lot of Microsoft awards and it's uh, actually how I ended up at Microsoft in the end um, and before that uh, uh, I was at a company called Higher Intelligence here in Perth, actually, uh, as a franchise manager. It was when I was very young, probably about 22, 23, but uh, learned a lot from that job. My job mm -hmm. was to train uh, uh, business owners who were buying franchises in how to run that business. Um, so I used to put them through a six-week franchise course. And uh, to be honest, I learned more from them than what they did from me, I think. I was often speaking to experienced bank managers and accountants that were in their 40s and 50s who were looking to run their own business for the last 10 years of their career. And I listened a lot and, uh, and learned a lot during How, that time. Were they the ones with the logo that was like the evolving exactly. to, the, to the human? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Still around, still around. Um, computer rental, uh, not so lucrative anymore, I think, but they've certainly specialised in some other things. But uh, we actually went public back when I was with that oh, company, wow. back in early two, early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, we, we floated here on the ASX. So it was an exciting time. My first uh, my first the IPO. Company. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Very yeah, it good. Was. Yeah, I'd love to learn about like the, the Auth0 experience. Um, so how, sort of tell us about the team now. How, how big is it? Today so today, uh, at the moment, it's 580 people, I think, uh, Auth0 has grown to at the end of the year last year. Um, uh, when I, I left the company back in July, uh, relocated back here to Australia from Seattle, uh, we're about 500 um, when I left in July. When I started at the beginning of 2015, we're about 25. Um, so we came uh, we came quite a long way in those four or five years. Quite a lot of rapid growth, for sure. Yeah, also 20 times larger than, than when you joined. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Yep. And so what over the last 12 months, what's sort of the biggest change been 
of the last 12 months that you saw? What was the what was the biggest changes there? Um, well, f- for sure, I think it was that uh, you know that feeling of moving probably from startup to a little bit more formality around how the business was being run. Um, not that we lost a lot of the flexibility we had around experimentation and around uh, you know iterating of how we we're doing things. Um, but more, you know, starting to build parts of the business that perhaps we hadn't invested a lot in in the past. So, for example, the HR function um, was something that over the last sort of 12 to 18 months really yeah. grew in the business because, yeah. you know, suddenly managing people and having a lot of that formality in place became a lot more important as you were heading into four or 500 employees. Not only that, but a lot of the legality around opening up branch offices in different countries, which is something that we started to do. So offices in the UK, offices in Singapore now, down here in Australia, uh, down in Buenos Aires in Argentina. So a lot of the formality around, you know, different legal requirements and compliance requirements. So um, certainly uh, investing in HR um, was one of the biggest things that uh, changes over the last 12 months. What about in your team so how did that affect sort of you and the, the team around you what were the biggest changes that you saw personally yeah I think uh, again it was um, it was a big focus on hiring uh, you know um, uh, for, for diversity as well we had a big um, uh, a big push to really making sure that when we we're hiring we we're hiring different people from different backgrounds with different experience um, and and that comes from you know different thinking as well you know as I was uh, when I thought about diversity I used to actually think about diversity of thinking a lot of the time and so we had people in uh, in my team for example that I hired that had never necessarily been from a traditional customer success background yeah. um, and so they could often bring in a lot of uh, you know different thinking and we reflected that throughout the company it doesn't matter whether you're in engineering in fact I remember one of the uh, early Early uh, engineers that we hired, he was uh, an accountant for most of his life. So uh, he ran his own little side project that was, uh, you know, a development mm. thing that he that he built himself. Um, um, but uh, he was an accountant, you know, and here is this accountant who decided to pivot into engineering. But that was kind of set the goal or set the tone, I think, for a lot of the people we hired in the business yeah. and um, really looking for, you know, different people that could bring different thinking uh, yeah. into the business. That's not even something you think about in the early days of, of diversity. You sort of think just more, I need to get this work done and, right. and get the right person for it. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was something that uh, benefited us a lot uh, because we did happen to, you know, maybe even it was by accident in some ways, but we, we always had that... Uh, 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 opinion of you know hiring talent no matter where they were so you know, we started off as a very remote company as well which was something quite unique we didn't necessarily hire people in Seattle in, in Bellevue where we were located in Washington um, we hired people all around the world based on the talent that we needed um, so we had people very early on when we we're even you know 30 or 40 staff based yeah. in Canada US uh, Singapore probably India um, people over in Belgium from memory so people all around the world from the very early stages mm. hmm. um, so I'm going to take um, take Clayton back to those early days. You've just started. You're six or eight months into your your management role at all zero. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got uh, CEOs and leaders listening to the the podcast today, thinking like, "What do I need to learn as I'm heading towards that that stage in uh, my company?" Right. As it relates to how do I think about new hires that I'm about to make? How do I optimize the team I may have inherited when I took the role? Yep. Um, or how do we know we've got the right structure for the organisation? Maybe for for that first year that you're in the job, what things did you find just didn't seem right or felt like they were out of place or or felt like they were breaking in the the domain of... Of, mm. uh, the work you were designing. Oh, you're giving me shudders, taking me back to then. That was uh, you know, a <laughs> time where I didn't sleep much, I remember, because uh, there was so much to do. Um, but look, there was, there was a lot of trial by error, for sure. I mean, uh, I, I think um, 
I think if I think back to what I tried to do at some point, you know, I remember sketching out a bit of an org chart for my own org. It was like, this is what I think I need, you know, and here's me up the top and here's some, uh, you know, customer success managers we need here and then I probably need this function and that function. And I kind of had it all mapped out. And I even remember filling my name out in most of those boxes because you know there was only two or three of us in the team at that point um i think what i came to realize is that uh, a lot of the time um uh, you know we didn't really know there was no point trying to predict the functions that we needed i think a lot of the time it was dictated by the customers for starters so yeah. we might have thought that we needed a particular function let's say uh, customer marketing um but in reality you know our customers were demanding something else and so a lot of the time that the team was really formed around what our customers needed and uh, listening to the customers became something that was super important. Um, I think the other thing that became a challenge very quickly as we started to grow, you know, three, five, six people in the team was probably a lot of the internal contracts as I used to call them. You know, how do we work, customer success team work with our engineering team? How do we work with our product team? Where's the line of responsibility for different things? You know, in customer success, a typical thing was, you know, customers had a, a bug that they might've found in the product. And so, you know, what was the process between customer success and product and engineering of handling that and getting back to the customer. And so those customer contracts were something that, um, oh, sorry, the internal contracts between teams were something that became very important that we probably built too late, you know, after learning that it was something that we needed to do. Yeah. Um, but so it was me, key. Super interested about that. Um, mm. we, we do get people ask us all the time about conflict that exists between senior members in their right. organization, maybe them in a peer yep. or a CEO reflecting on what they've had to deal with between team members. Um, how bad has that got? Not necessarily at, at all zero. I know yeah. you've got a lot of different situations that you've uh, environments that you've worked in. Um, tell me about another one of those theatres as a manager that where you've ended up with um, a bit of conflict. Conflict as yeah, a result sure. of that lack of clarity between yeah. teams. How that how that actually played out in work and how it actually affected things. Yeah. Look, I think uh, you know. I think early on. I was always a little bit afraid of conflict, to be honest. I think conflict was a bad thing. And I think what I've come to learn over the last sort of 10 years is that conflict is actually a very healthy thing a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and I think it gives you the opportunity to understand why there is conflict. And for sure, you know, as you said, with some senior managers, you know, some of my peers in other companies I've been at before, you know, it, it, uh, the conflict makes you realize you're not on the same page. And I think the important thing to do is, is to correct that. And often that comes down to, um, you know, just thinking about the overall objectives and understanding that, you know, my team might have had a different objective to what that person's team does and sitting down and working that out. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times in the companies I've worked for, we've managed to probably, um, uh, you know, smooth that out by implementing organizational wide type, uh, you know, OKRs, if you've, if you've heard of that particular framework. So objectives and key results or KPIs or whatever they are. But I think it all stems from just as a company, uh, ensuring that there is some clear objectives and, and what I like to call the most important thing right now. I think that really helps align a lot of managers. I think there's always, you know, there's that whole phrase of if everything's important, nothing's important. And I yeah. think, again, that's one of the things uh, in faster growing companies, especially, uh, it's worthwhile just uh, having that discussion with peers about what's yeah. important right now. And everyone's aligned around that. And I think that helps sort of remove some of that conflict. Yeah, it, help, it helps make it something that's not a person that you're annoyed with, but you can, you can deal with the conflict around the objective rather rather than right. taking it personally and, and um, dealing with a, a personal issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, conflict is now something that I actually come to, I guess, enjoy in some way. But even even when I've been you know, in my capacity in the last sort of uh, few months in, in helping out some other startups and chatting to them about their leadership teams and, uh, and who they should perhaps have in the leadership team, I think, again, that diversity of thinking 
in fact, you know, causes a little bit of conflict. And I think that's healthy conflict. You know, I, I think you don't want to be in the position where everyone's agreeing with you and saying yes, um, because you get some, uh, you know, you, some great ideas and great clarity when people challenge you and, and you have that conflict. So I think it's something to be uh, aware of, but also not to be afraid of. Yeah, yeah. a healthy, a healthy tension. Right. Yeah, I think exactly. a great point there was around prioritization. You know, we see mm-hmm. tons of different methods. The OK method is very mm-hmm. popular in the US in in the Valley. Um, EOS is, uh, we see a lot of people right. in, in having EOS and using um, accountability, is having accountability chart in place. Um, tell us a, a little bit more when you go into those situations around what you did to, to document the business as usual in each person's role. Did, were you an organisation that was diligent around documenting job descriptions? Did you have mission statements? Um, did you have gig guides? We've heard lots of different ways right. that, that that's phrased. What, what method did you use for someone's business as usual as opposed to the prioritization of work? Yeah, for sure. Teams? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, it's changed in the different organizations, of course. And, uh, you know, big organizations I've worked for, very documentation heavy. And, you know, people's roles were very clearly documented um, in terms of the functions and even even things like levels between roles. So mm-hmm. here's the function that you might do now. Here's the function that you might perform, you know, if you move to the next level. But then, of course, there's a the mm-hmm. flip side of that, you know, at uh, more like uh, the experience where uh, at a startup where you know, nothing is documented and everything is, is on the fly and, and ad hoc. Um, and that's part of, again, uh, you know, perhaps that question you asked before about what's changed over the last you know, a few months or a few years, I should say. Um, some of that formality for sure around understanding exactly what the role, uh, uh, what functions a role has, um, how they operate, uh, where the responsibilities lie uh, has become more important. And so, um, you know, did we document that necessarily or did I as a manager at Auth0? Well, eventually we probably started to record those things in some of the tools we had, but uh, it was still pretty fluid. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, moving the goalposts between roles um, as we grew because, again, it was a lot of demand about what our customers needed at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I think um, thinking about what we needed in the team and uh, recruiting new people, you know, it was often there was a list of functions, again, that we kind of needed to fulfill and, and we try and build job descriptions around that. Yeah. Um, so st- sticking with that initial period of time, mm. you're in that first year, you're not sleeping very much, things are, are pretty crazy. Uh-huh. And the organization's moving from this, everyone does everything, everyone's a generalist, but they do specific things, to now I need to start being a specialist. Right. How do you find that transition of the people that, that you led and, and your peers? And um, what, what were the challenges you experienced as people had a huge span of understanding across the organization and had to start to now narrow down yeah. to what their team did or what their team looked after. Yeah, well, that was actually a really, you know, uh, interesting shift when we did move from that kind of period of everybody being a generalist, as you said, to kind of realising that you need specialisation. Even for me personally, that was quite an an interesting period where I realised that shift was happening. Um, And, you know, uh, in the early days of the startup, you're right, everybody was wearing all sorts of different hats and doing a lot of different things. And uh, there were some people that really enjoyed that. And there were others that really required more of a a pigeonhole job description to kind of operate effectively. And so I think as a manager, as our team grew, for sure, it was uh, important to recognize that between individuals. And there were some individuals who loved uh, in my team, you know, taking on stretch projects, as we used to call them. They weren't necessarily part of their uh, day-to-day job description, but they had a talent for doing those things and they loved doing them and they were passionate about them. And so to identify that was really important, I think, and give some of those people the opportunity to do those things that they loved, even though they might have been a little bit out of the bounds of their normal job. And then there was the other folks, like you said, that... uh, 
excelled at just doing the the four or five things that were uh, you know paramount to operating in their role and they could do those super efficiently and sometimes they'd even take on you know other work from other people because they were so efficient at doing that um, so uh, as we sort of grew into that specialization then identifying those people in the team that were good at you know those specialist roles identifying the ones that liked a little bit of a broader scope did become really important and uh, and determine you know where you shifted people around both within the individual team but also in the organization sometimes there'd be somebody who might move out of my team into a different part of the organization because we recognized that they had a particular skill set yeah. that suited better and what did that change sort of happen in bursts or was that all very gradual and easy and smooth a little bit of both you know it certainly yeah. happened in bursts in different teams in different part of the of the business um at all zero again if i'm reflecting on that so you know there may have been periods where uh, our engineering team suddenly need to specialize. You know, I remember going through a few iterations of uh, the way that our engineering team was structured mm. uh, with different team leads and uh, and things like that because suddenly we needed specialization in how the engineering team was, was perhaps working. Um, and same in the sales team. You know, we, we may have uh, had a broad sales team that sort of sold to anyone initially, but then there was a period over a few months where that you know, became specialized where they had either different market segments or, or a different geographical segments or whatever it might have been. Yeah. Um, so oh, it didn't certainly happen smoothly um, yeah. I would say it was yeah, a little bit sporadic over time between different teams and then yeah. sort of a, a general shift for sure around really you know becoming specialized uh, right exactly yeah, yeah. really so really finding specialization what, what was the hardest part of that change um, tell us about the, the sort of the thing that became the hardest for you well, I think for me personally, you know, it was actually uh, recognizing what I was good at and uh, what I could excel at, I think, and the things that I didn't really love doing um, and, you know, didn't really speak to my own passions. In fact, I wrote, you know, quite a... a uh, an um, uh, intimate blog post about it a, a year or so ago about suffering uh, mm -hmm. imposter syndrome a little bit and a lot of it was mm -hmm. driven through this period where you know I, I felt like because we were coming into this specialization now you know I'm not somebody who loves to tweak the dials and, and watch the numbers I like building things yeah. from scratch but that's yeah. also some of the realization I had is that I can be thrown into sort of uh, fairly ambiguous situations uh, not necessarily know where a path leads and uh, you know be good at leading people down that path so I think a lot of people in the company had that same sort sort of, um, you know, thought process and realization. And uh, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, perhaps some people felt a little bit lost during that period. Um, so I think as managers, um, and certainly, you know, as our senior leadership team as well, were uh, really excellent, I think, at identifying, um, you know, people that perhaps were in that space and trying to figure out where in the organization they could be most impactful because yeah. you know, not everyone has to be a specialist. And, yeah. and I think, you know, in some way, that's why I moved into that other role that I mentioned where I ended up being head of culture because mm -hmm. that was something that was new in the company at Auth0 um, and something that I could sort of, again, use my skills and passion for building from scratch, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So were there things that broke for individuals where you could see that this they might have been a great fit previously, but where things just weren't working out for them. You said that yeah. the executive were really great at identifying that. I right. How you how you saw that and how things started to, to break at that point. Yeah, well, I think one of the things as we matured um, and we you know implemented more and more tools that kind of give a little bit more uh, insight and transparency into people, you know, what people were doing day to day. So, yeah. you know, if you think about traditional sales teams and, and my customer success team, um, I mean, in the beginning, there wasn't necessarily any way to capture exactly what activities were going on during any particular day. It was kind of just everybody was at it. But as we matured, we had tools in place where you could now see the efficiency of a, of a salesperson, you know, how many calls, how many touch points they might have had and so on and so forth. And then of course, actual numbers and KPIs, you know, renewal rates, churn rates, you know, sales lead conversion, all those types of things. And, uh, you know, I think as that specialization narrowed, you could see 
uh, certain people who you know necessarily yeah. weren't um, you know maybe keeping up with the numbers or, or, or hitting the same kind of pace as what some other people were, and that wasn't necessarily a sign of bad performance. Sometimes it was a sign of you know this feeling that perhaps they weren't suited to that particular specialization, or they were feeling a little bit pigeonholed and weren't able to you know do some of the things that were generally yeah. passionate about. And I guess what we didn't want to lose in the business is you know the people that had been there and had a lot of um, uh, you know, cultural knowledge uh, in some way were even icons of of the business, you know, referring to Auth0 again. And uh, we didn't want some of those people to feel pigeonholed because of those specializations. It was really important to keep good people in the business, which is you know, what I'm referring to in terms of being great at identifying yeah, so that the, and repurposing, if you like, some of those skill sets. Those, those people from the early days like contributed a lot in the when they were sort of first joined the company, Absolutely. but then that changes and you, you feel that responsibility to them. Yeah, for yeah. sure, that's right. And I think uh, you know they were successful in those first few years because of the skill sets they had. So you mm -hmm. know it was very much about identifying how their skill sets, I think, can be repurposed, even in the more mature um, period during the company. And, and there's always something to be built you know, yeah. at a company, as you guys can attest to, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, there was always a time for, for somebody to go and start something no, new. Nev never a time to sit back and go, it's all done. Exactly. Yeah, we're feeling great about this right That's now. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, we can just coast. We've, uh, we've made it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, now, uh, Clayton, looking at um, you building the teams, you talked about the fact you love building. Mm. Um, how did you, uh, kind of two questions together, how, how did you build new roles or make decisions around who was going to be the next hire in the team? Where did you get that information from? How did you optimise the team around who you should hire? Um, and how did things change? And did you go through a period, you obviously grew quite quickly at mm -hmm. some point through there where you were having to hire more than one, where you're making right. lots and lots of hires. What did you learn through that period of time? What would your advice to someone who's about to have to go through a a pretty drastic hiring spree be? Yeah, well, maybe to start at the first question, I mean, the most obvious advice I would come up to is is not to panic and rush because, you know, I think hiring the right sort of people is the most important thing to do. And I think a natural thing when you have this uh, overwhelming sense of there's so much work and we need more people is to rush and hire people that aren't a great fit for the organisation. Um, you know, I think, again, the advice I have for people is to always hire for the fit for, for your team, your company first, um, and for probably skills and, and the actual role second. So I think uh, I think not rushing and panicking into hiring people just because you need people would be my advice. In terms of how we knew we needed new people, look, I mean, we had different different things that we did over the years, different methodologies I even used, I guess, from having a nice model in Excel that showed me that, you know, if we had this many customers, then I'd need this many staff. You know, that sometimes worked, sometimes it absolutely didn't work as well. Um, often it was, uh, you know, a, a, a product of... Um, of just needing a function that we didn't have, or at least we didn't think we have. So, you know, I come back to like operations, for example, became really important. You know, we used these tools I was talking about before, implementing dashboards in those tools, using analytics, using data. There wasn't necessarily anyone that was great at doing that. And so that became a role that we needed. And I think one of the um, mistakes we made sometimes was going out and hiring people before we'd even perhaps queried internally in the organization whether somebody could already do that mm -hmm. or maybe somebody yeah. was even already doing that in a different team <laughs> and so often we'd have you know three people that uh, you know could be doing a similar role um, because you know, that's what happens when you grow quickly you, but, but you hired someone external was there ever situations where <laughs> friction was caused where you're like hang on a minute that's what I'm doing all of a sudden a new person lobs in <laughs> yeah. next to you to take all your 
stuff you love doing off you into their role? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly within teams, I think yeah. that happens sometimes. You know, you, you're expanding as a team. And so, uh, you know, again, you were going from that startup phase of wearing a lot of different hats. So, you know, I had people in my team that were doing maybe marketing activities. Again, it wasn't necessarily their role, but they loved creating marketing flyers or doing emails out to customers. But then we might have you know, hired a, a marketing person to take on that stuff. And so, again, that balance of finding what people are passionate about doing and the different functions that they like doing, you know, was something that was important as a manager because you don't want to suddenly deflate somebody because, as you said, you took some yeah. of the work off them. But that um, was my responsibility. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So and either I giving them... It. I loved it. I was motivated by it. Right, exactly. So so either giving them more responsibility, I guess, or uh, allowing them to still have input into some of those things was pretty important. Going from the job design all the way up to org- organisation design, I'm sure you ended up in conversations around the structure of a whole organisation. Yeah, Tell absolutely. me about... Um, what tools did you do use to do that? You can be explicit. You know, it's a whiteboard. Was it a Word document? Was it a all of those? I yeah. think we used every tool, all the ones, <laughs> and, all and the what, tools. What did you find painful and uh, about the the process of deciding how the whole organisation should be structured? Yeah, I think um, you know, I think just plotting out an org chart um, and trying to trying to make it look pretty is not that important in the end you know like we we would use a whiteboard and you know customer success should report to sales should report here and that would look nice but then practically it, it might not have worked or maybe the teams weren't aligned because of certain we, objectives. A very serious question around colors mm-hmm. we do notice <laughs> a strong propensity even though it probably isn't where you should start first as you've suggested uh-huh. a strong propensity for people make a org chart look beautiful well, it's is look colors beautiful. In very the org important. chart, important. <laughs> very important. And the yeah. shape of the... Well, it has to have that nice pyramid shape, <laughs> <Yeah>. for sure. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you're doing something wrong. But that's the thing. I think a lot of the time you are concentrating on building that that look of the org chart because you're so used to seeing it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, yes, we used various tools for everything from you know plotting things out on a whiteboard to having complex... Uh, uh, Excel spreadsheets, Google Sheets, to you know using you know SaaS tools to 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 have that. Um, some work more effectively than others, but at the end of the day, I think the looking at the org chart was actually less important than understanding you know how things worked in terms of the reporting and the functions and where things sat in the organisation. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Frank Lama's functional five. What do you personally need to stay functional? To stay functional yeah. in my in my personal or work life or in general. Life, what is the most important thing? Oh, I think uh, sleep, sleep yeah. for sure. Sleep and uh, topped off with a coffee in the morning. Uh, look, I, I have a terrible habit of not sleeping, and I very quickly become dysfunctional when I realise I have not had enough sleep. So, I think sleep for me is probably one of the most important things to Great. stay functional. So, question two: uh, Thinking about designing work and work design, who has inspired you? Um, who would you like to hear from on the podcast? Oh, that's a, a good question. Look, I think, uh, I don't know if I could name somebody specifically, but I think uh, I admire any CEO and senior uh, execs in fast-growing startups. So, I mean, there's yep. some big fast-growing startups in the US, uh, even companies like you know Slack, um, companies like GitHub that have distributed kind of workforces. You know, I, th- I admire the way that they've built their organizations and uh, you know, would love to hear about the experience of, of the pitfalls and, uh, and things they did right um, from, from some of those people for sure. Awesome. Uh, question three, what is your favorite work design hack or shortcut? Oh, gee, these are good questions, Tim, to put me on the spot. Let me think. I, I think uh, 
Look, I think genuinely just sitting with a team and, and asking them what's working and what they enjoy doing and what we're not doing correctly. I think a lot of the time, again, as a manager, you can assume a lot of things and you can have this perfect chart of how you think should, things should work. I think some of the best intel you can get is just directly from your staff and your reports and asking them how should things work in their world. Um, and uh, I think that can be a quick shortcut to you know, getting rid of a lot of work that you don't need to do just by listening to, to what's working from your team. Yeah. Okay. Question four. If you could make it all over again, what would you choose to break first? What would I choose to break first? Um, yeah, that's a good question too. Look, I think, I think uh, probably not making a lot of assumptions about how our customers uh, or how customers use your product. I think in in you know, and, and perhaps you can relate to this when you're building a product. There's a lot of assumptions about how customers are going to use it, mm -hmm. and I think what I found over time is that customers find every other way to use it and yeah. uh, and to have Frankenstein solutions out of out of the product or service that you're putting out there. So, I think uh, not over investing on building out documentation and you know different uh, assets around telling customers how to use the product but in fact letting customers dictate a little bit about you know what they want to do and then building a lot of things around that yeah yeah that might be one of those awesome. things and the the final thing mm. for uh, listeners of the podcast ceos senior leadership team members thinking about the structure of their company uh -huh. what would the one kind of nugget of information that you've learned from your uh, experiences to date that you'd like to share with them? Well, I think uh, not to be afraid to experiment and make mistakes. I think that was probably one of the biggest things that uh, we did a great job of at AuthZero and even in some of the other companies I've worked at is just trying things, not uh, not spending ages and ages and uh, you know 30 deck PowerPoint presentations planning things out and thinking that they're going to be perfect. Um, I think just give things a go and uh, if they don't work and they fail, great, learn from it reiterate or iterate I should say I'll reiterate that you should iterate and uh, and try again um, I think uh, yeah staying stagnant is, is an enemy for, for most businesses these days so I think just trying things out and not worrying about it if it fails great Clayton thank you for joining us on the Welcome. work design podcast uh, where we talk all things job design team design and org design in our companies large and small Keep an eye out for our up-and-coming podcast. We've got some great people joining us in future sessions. We really appreciate having so you along. More, more great people. More great people yeah. joining <laughs> us. <laughs> uh, Clayton, again, thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Uh, thanks for having thank me you. along. Yeah, and Damien, thank you for uh, joining us. Thanks, Tim. Frank, thanks for the questions. Thanks to Frank. Thanks for joining Tim and Damien, co-founders of Functionally, on their quest to make work work better. If this episode has given you value, please share this with another leader and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe now to make sure you're among the first to listen to the next episode of the Work Design Podcast. For more about the latest in global work design trends, head to Functionally.com and sign up for our monthly work design publication.